Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. Okay, well, <clears throat> while Peyton pretends to wake up but falls back asleep, I'm going to read I'm going to read some books. How do you feel about that, Pay? Mhm. Mhm. A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket, Book the 11th, The Grim Grotto, Chapter 12. Okay, remember, this is a morning episode, so I'm going to be doing some pausing to drink some coffee. Right, Peyton? Mm-hmm. And can somebody please tell me why the pumpkin pie spice is $11.99? What in the world at Safeway? Of all places. Oh, I'm fine? Okay, never mind. Peyton says I'm fine. False alarm. I'm fine. Okay. Okay. Chapter 12. The expression, the tables have turned, is not one that the Baudelaire orphans had had much occasion to use, as it refers to a situation that has suddenly been reversed, so that those who were previously in a powerless position could suddenly find themselves in a powerful one, and vice versa. For the Baudelaire's, the tables had turned at Briny Beach when they received the news of the terrible fire, and Count Olaf suddenly became powerful and terrifying, figuring out their lives as time went on. The siblings waited and waited at the table to turn waited for the table to turn back so that Olaf might be defeated once and for all, and so that they could find themselves free of the sinister and mysterious forces that threatened to engulf them. But the tables of the Baudelaire's lives seemed stuck with the children that always were in a position of misery and sorrow, while wickedness seemed to triumph all around them. But as Violet hurriedly opened the tin of the wasabi she had been keeping in her pocket, she spooned the grain-spicy mixture into Sunny's wheezing mouth. It seemed like the tables might turn after all. Sunny gasped when the wasabi hit her tongue, and the stalks and the caps of the metasoid mycelium shivered, and they seemed to shrink back from the powerful Japanese condiment. In moments, the fungus begins to wither and fade away, and the Sunny's wheezing faded to a cough, and her coughing faded to deep breaths as the youngest Baudelaire rallied a word, rallied, a word here which means regained her strength and ability to breathe. The youngest Baudelaire hung on tight to her sibling's hand, and her eyes filled with tears, but Violet and Klaus could see that the medusoid mycelium would not triumph over their sister. It's working, Violet said. Sunny's breathing is getting stronger. Yes, Klaus said. We've turned the tables on that ghastly fungus. Water, Sunny said, and her brother stood up from the kitchen floor and got his sister a glass of water. Weakly, the youngest Baudelaire sat up and drank deeply from the glass and then hugged both of her siblings as tightly as she could. Thank you, she said. Saved me. You saved yourself, Violet pointed out. We had the wasabi this whole time, but... We didn't think of giving you until giving it to you until you told us. Finally, Sunny coughed again and laid back down on the floor. Tuckered, she murmured. I'm not surprised you're exhausted, Violet said. You've been through quite an ordeal. Shall we carry you to the barracks so that you can rest? Rest here, Sunny said, curling up at the foot of the stove. You will really be comfortable. You're really comfortable on the kitchen floor, Klaus said. 
Sunny opened one exhausted eye and smiled at her siblings. Near you, she said. All right, Sunny, Violet said, grabbing a dish towel from the kitchen counter and folding it into a pillow for her sister. We'll be in the main hall if you need us. What next? Shh, Klaus said, putting another dish on dish towel on top of her. Don't worry, Sunny. We'll figure out what to do next. The Baudelaire's tiptoed out of the kitchen, carrying a tin of wasabi. Do you think that she'll be all right? Violet asked. I'm sure she will, Klaus said. After a nap, she'll be as good as new, but we should eat some of that wasabi ourselves. When we opened the diving helmet, we were exposed to the medusoid mycelium, and we'll need all the strength that we can get to get away from Olaf. Violet needed to put a spoonful of wasabi in her mouth, shuddering violently as the condiment hit her tongue. There's one last spoonful, Violet said, uh, handing the tin to her brother. We'd better make sure that the the diving helmet stays close until we get our hands on some horseradish to destroy that fungus for good. Klaus nodded in agreement and closed his eyes and ate the last of the Japanese condiment. If we ever invent a food... A food code. A f- invent that food code we talked about with Fiona. He said the word wasabi should mean powerful. And no wonder this cured our sister. But now that we've cured her, Violet said, remember Sunny's question that fell asleep? Bef- as she fell asleep, what's next? Olaf is next, Klaus said firmly. He has. He said he has everything he needs to defeat VFD forever, except the sugar bowl. You're right, Violet said. Hold on, I'm checking something. You're right, Violet said. We do have to turn the tables on him and find it before he does. But we don't know where it is, Klaus said. Someone must have taken it from the Gorgonian Grotto. I wonder, Violet said, but she never said what she wondered because a strange noise interrupted her. The noise was sort of a whirr sort of a whir, followed by a sort of beep, followed by all sorts of noises that seemed to be coming from the deep within the machinery of the Queequeg. Finally, a green light lit up on the panel wall, and a, f- and a flat white object began to slither out of a tiny slit in the panel. It's paper, Klaus said. Well, it's more than paper, Violet said, as she walked over to the p- panel. The sheet of paper curled up in her hands, in her hand as it emerged from the slit, as if it were a machine, impatiently we're impatient for the eldest Baudelaire to reach it. This is a telegram device. We must be receiving a volunteer factual dispatch. Klaus finished. Violet nodded and scanned the paper quickly. Sure enough, the words volunteer factual dispatch were printed on the top as more and more of the paper appeared to the eldest Baudelaire and that she saw it was addressed to the Queequeg with the date printed below, as well as the name of the person who was sending the telegram, miles and miles away on dry land. It was a name Violet almost dared not say out loud, even though she had felt as if she'd been whispering it to herself for days. (sighs) Ever since the icy waters had stricken of the stricken stream carried her away, a young man who meant very much to her. It's from Quigley Quagmire, she said. Klaus's eyes widened in astonishment. What does it say? Violet smiled as the telegram finished printing and her fingers and her finger touching the cue in her friend's name. It was almost as if knowing that Quigley was alive was enough of the message. It is my understanding that you have to, you have three additional volunteers aboard. Stop. She read, remembering that stop indicates the end of a sentence of a telegram. We are in desperate need of their services for most urgent matter. Stop. 
Please deliver them Tuesday to the location indicated on the rhymes below. Stop. She scanned the paper and frowned thoughtfully. There are two poems, she said, one by Lewis Corral and one by T.S. Eliot. They almost look like his, like, they, Klaus took his commonplace book out of his pocket and flipped pages until he found what he was looking for. Verse fluctuation declaration, he said. That's the code that we've been using for the grotto. Quigley must have changed something in the word. Quigley must have changed some of the words around in the poem so that nobody else knew we were supposed that we were supposed to meet him. Let's see if we can recognize the changes. Violet nodded and read the first poem out loud. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us. <sighs> the walrus did the did beseech a pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the movie theater. The last part sounds wrong, Violet said. There was no movie theater when Lewis and Carol was alive. Or when Lewis Corral was alive, Klaus said. But what are the real words of the poem? I don't know, said Violet. I've always found Lewis Corral too whimsical for my taste. I like him, Klaus said, but I haven't memorized any of his poems. Uh, uh, read, the, read the other one. Maybe that will help. Violet nodded. At the pink hour when the eyes and the black turn upside down from the desk, when the human, human engine waits like a pony throbbing party. The voice of the eldest Baudelaire trained, trailed off, and she looked at her brother in confusion. That's all, she said. The poem stops there. There's nothing else in the telegram? Only a few letters at the very bottom, she said. C-C-J-S. What does that mean? C-C means Quigley sent a copy of this message to someone else, Klaus said, and J-S are the initials, are the initials of the person. Those mysterious mi- initials again, Violet said. But it can't be Jacques Snicket because he's dead. Who else could it be? We can't worry about that right now, Klaus said. Klaus, Klaus said. We have to figure out what those words have been substituted in these, the words that have been substituted in the poem. How can we do that, Violet asked. I don't know, Klaus said. Why, why would Quigley think that we would have these poems memorized? Well, he wouldn't think that, Violet said. He, would, he knows us, but the telegram was addressed to the Quigley. He knows that somebody on board could decode the poetry. But who, Klaus said, not Fiona, she's a mycologist. An optimist like Bill is likely to be familiar with T.S. Eliot. And it's hard to imagine Captain Wittershins having a serious interest in poetry. Not anymore, Violet said thoughtfully. But Fiona's brother and but Fiona's brother said that he and the captain used to study poetry together. That's true, Klaus said. He said that, that they used to read to one another in the main hall. He walked over to the side and opened up the cabinet, peering into the books Fiona kept inside. But there's no poetry here, just Fiona's mycology books. Captain Wittershins wouldn't keep poetry books out in the out front like that, Violet said. He would have kept them in secret, just like he kept the secret of what happened to Fiona's brother, Klaus said. He thought that there were secrets too terrible for young people to know, but Violet knew that we, but now we need to know them. Klaus, Klaus was silent for a moment and then turned to his sister. There's something that I never told you. Uh, there's something that I never told you, he said. Remember when our parents were so angry at, over the, the spoiled atlas? We talked, about the gro- we talked about that in the grotto, Violet said. The rain spoiled it when we left the window open. I don't think that was the only reason they were mad, Klaus said. I took down that last... I took down that, that atlas from the top shelf, one that I could reach by putting my the stepladder up on the top of the, uh, on top of the chair they don't think i could reach that shelf 
That doesn't make sense. I'm going to read that over. I don't think that that's the only reason they were mad, Klaus said. I took that atlas down from the top of the shelf, one that I could only reach by putting the stepladder on top of the chair. They don't think that I could reach that shelf. Well, then why would that make them angry, Violet? Violet asked. Klaus looked down. That's where they kept the books that they didn't want us to find, he said. I was interested in the atlas, but when I removed it from the shelf, there was a whole row of other books. What kind of books? Violet asked. I didn't get a, get a good look at them, Klaus asked. There were a few books about war, I think a few books about romances. I was too interested in the atlas to investigate any further, but I remember thinking that it was strange that our parents had hidden had hidden those books. That's why they were so angry, I think. When they saw the atlas in the window seat, they knew I'd discovered their se- the, circuit, the secret. Did you ever look at them again, Violet asked. I didn't have a chance, Klaus said. They moved them to another hiding spot, and I never saw them again. Maybe our parents were going to tell us what was in those books when we were older, Violet said. Maybe, Klaus said, but we'll never know. We lost them in the fire. The eldest Baudelaire sat quietly for a moment, looking at the cabinet inside looking at the cabinet in the sideboard and then without a word the two siblings stepped out stepped onto the wooden table so that they could find the highest cabinet inside was a small stack of books on such a dull topic on such dull topics as child as child rearing proper improper diets the water cycle and when the children pushed these books aside they saw what they'd been looking for elizabeth bishop Violet said, Charles Sismic, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Franz Wright, Daphne Gottlieb. There's all sorts of poetry in here. Why don't you read T.S. Eliot, Klaus suggested, handing over the thick, dusty volume. And I'll tackle Lewis Corral. If we read, if we read quickly, we might be able to find the real poems in the message. I found something else, Violet said, handing, handing her brother a crumpled square of paper. Look. Klaus looked at it looked at what his sister had given him it was a photograph blurred and faded with age of four people grouped together like a family in the center of the photograph was a large man with a long mustache and was curved up at the end like a pair of parent parentheses captain wooderson's of course although captain wooderson's of course although he looked much younger and a great deal happier than the children had ever seen him he was laughing and his arm was around someone the two Baudelaire's recognized as the hook-handed man, although he was not hook-handed at the photo, but both of his hands were perfectly intact, one resting on the captain's shoulder and the other pointing to whoever was taking the picture, and he was young enough to still be called a teenager instead of a man. On the other side of the captain was was a woman who was laughing as hard as the captain, and in her arms was a young infant with a tiny set of triangular glasses. That must be Fiona, Klaus said, pointing at the laughing woman. Look, Violet said, pointing to the wall of the family. This was taken on board of the Queequeg. That's the edge of the plaque on Captain's personal philosophy. He who hesitates is lost. The whole family is lost almost, Klaus, Klaus said quietly. Fiona's mother's dead. Her brother joined Count Olaf's trope, and he knows where his, who knows where her stepfather is. He put down the photograph and opened his commonplace book and flipped to the beginning where he had where he had pasted another paragraph taken paragraph had taken so long. This photograph had also had four people in it, although one of the people was facing away from the camera, so it was impossible to tell who it was. The second person was Jacques Snicket, of course, who was long dead. 
and the other person, the other people, were the Baudelaire parents. Klaus had kept this photo ever since the hospital, ever since the children found it. Heimlich, oh my god, hold on. Klaus had kept this photograph ever since the children found it at Heimlich Hospital, and he had looked at it every day, gazing at his parents' faces and reading the sentence over and over again that had been typed below. Because of the evidence discussed on page 9, the sentence read, Experts now suspect there may be one survivor of the fire, but the survivor's whereabouts are unknown. For quite some time, the Baudelaire's had thought that this meant one of their parents was alive after all, but now that they, now they were most almost certain that there was no such thing violet looked at one of the photographs looked from one of the photographs to the other imagining a time when no one in the picture was lost and everyone was happy klaus sighed and looked at his sister maybe we shouldn't be hesitating here klaus said maybe we should be rescuing our captain instead of reading books on poetry and looking at old photographs i don't want to lose fiona fiona's safe with her brother violet said and i'm sure she'll join us when she can she just needs to decode the message we need to decode the message, or we might lose everything. In this case, he or she, who doesn't hesitate, is lost. What if we decode the message before Fiona arrives? Klaus said, do we wait for her to join us? Well, we shouldn't have to, Violet said. The three of us could properly operate the submarine ourselves. All we need to do is repair the porthole, and we could probably steer the Queequeg out of the Carmelita. And we can't abandon her here, Klaus said. We shouldn't. She wouldn't abandon us. Are you sure? Violet asked. Klaus sighed and looked at the photograph. No, let's get to work. Violet nodded in agreement and the two Baudelaire's shelved the discussion, a phrase here which means temporarily stopped their conversation and the unshelved poetry book in order to get to work on the decoding the Quigley's verse fluctuation declaration. It had been some time since the Baudelaire's had been able to read in a comfortable place and the children were pleased to find themselves silently flipping pages searching for certain words and even taking a few notes reading poetry even if you're only reading one to find a secret message within words can often lead to a feeling of of powerful can often leave one feeling of power the way you feel power when you are when you are the only one who brought an umbrella in a rainy day or the only one who knows how to untie knots when you're take when you're taken as a hostage with each poem that the, the children felt more and more powerful, or as they might have said in their food code, more and more wasabi. By the time that the two volunteers were interrupted as they felt as the tables just might be, con- just might be continuing to turn, Snack announced a cheerful voice below them, and Violet and Klaus were pleased to see their sister emerging from the kitchen carrying a small plate. Sunny, Violet cried, we thought you were asleep. Recoup, the youngest Baudelaire said, which meant something along the lines of, I had a brief nap and I woke up and felt well enough to cook something. I'm a bit hungry, Klaus said. What did you make us? A mousse bouche, Sunny said, which meant something like tiny water chestnut sandwiches with a spread of cheese and some sesame seeds. Ooh, they're quite tasty, Violet said, and the three children shared a plate of a mousse bouche as the older Baudelaire's brought Sunny up to speed, a phrase here which means told her sibling told her sister what happened while she was suffering inside of the diving helmet. They told her about the terrible submarine 
they told her about the terrible sub- submarine that had swallowed the Queequeg and the terrible villain that enca- they encountered inside. They described the hideous circumstances in which the snow scouts had found themselves and the hideous clothing worn by Esme Squalor and Carmelita Spatz. They told her about the volunteer factual dispatch and the verse fluctuation declaration that they were trying to decode. And finally, they told her about the hook-handed man being Fiona's long-lost brother and the possibility that he might join them aboard at the Queequeg. Perifido, Sunny said, which meant it would be foolish to trust somebody from, trust one of Olaf's henchmen. We don't trust him, Klaus said. Not really. But Fiona trusts him, and we trust Fiona. Volatile, Sunny said. Yes, Violet admitted, but we don't have much of a choice. We're in the middle of the ocean. We need to get back to the beach, Klaus said, and held up one of the books of Louis Corral's poetry. I think I've solved the part of the verse with the fluctuation declaration. Louis Corral has a poem called The Walrus and the Carpenter. There was something about the walrus and the telegram, Violet said. Yes, Klaus said, it took me a while to find the specific stanza, but here it is. Quigley wrote, Oh, oysters, come and walk with us. The walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the movie theater. Yes, Violet said, but what does it actually say? Klaus read. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us. The walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. Klaus closed the book and looked up at his sisters. Quigley wanted us to meet him tomorrow, he said, at Briny Beach. Briny Beach, Violet repeated. The eldest Baudelaire did not have time to to hear her siblings, of course, of the last time that they were at Briny Beach, learning from Mr. Poe that this, the tables had of their lives had turned. The three siblings sat and thought of, on that ter- of that terrible day, which felt as blurred and faded as a photograph of Fiona's family, or the photograph that they have of their own parents, pasted to Klaus's commonplace notebook. Returning to Briny Beach after all this time felt to the Baudelaire's like an enormous step backwards, as if they could they would lose their parents and their home again. Mr. Poe would take them once more to Count Olaf's house, and all the unfortunate events would crash over them once more, like the waves of the ocean crashing on the tide poles of Briny Beach and the tiny passive creatures who lived inside. How would we get there? Klaus said, in the Queequeg. In the Queequeg, Violet said, this submarine should have a location device, and we know where it, where we are. I think we could set a course for Briny Beach. Distance, Sunny asked. Shouldn't be far, Klaus said. I'd have to check the charts, but what But what would we do if, when we got there? I think, I think I have the answer to that, Violet said, turning to the book of T.S. Eliot's poems. Quigley used, used lines from the very long poem in this book called The Wasteland. I tried to read that, Klaus said. But I found T.S. Eliot too opaque. I scarcely understood a word. Maybe it's all in code, Violet said. Listen to this. Quigley wrote, The pink hour when the eyes and when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk when human engine waits. Like pony like a pony throbbing party. But the real poem reads At the violet hour when the eyes and back turn upwards from the desk when the human engine waits, like a Blah, 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 interrupted a mocking voice. Ha, 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 blah, blah, blah. Tee, hee, snaggle, snaggle, hee, hee, hubba, hoo, giggle, diddle, demount. The Baudelaire's looked up from their books to face Count Olaf, who was already stepping through the porthole into the wooden table. Behind him was Esme, Squ- Esme Squalor. 
sneering beneath the hood of an octopus outfit, and the children could hear the unpleasant slapping of the footsteps of her horrid pink shoes from Carmelita Spatz, who who peeked her heart-decorated face into the submarine and giggled nastily. I'm happier than a pig-eating bacon, Olaf cried. I'm tickled pinker than a sunburned Caucasian. I'm higher. I'm in higher spirits than a brand new graveyard. I'm so happy-go-lucky that, that lucky and happy people are going to beat me with sticks out of pure, unbridled jealousy. Ha ha, Hickama, when I step into this brig to see how my associate was progressing and found that you orphans had flown to flown the coop i was afraid you were escaping or sabotaging my submarine or even sending telegrams asking for help but i should have known you were too dim-witted to do any of that look at yourselves orphans snacking and reading poetry powerful and good-looking people of the world cackled in triumph cackle cackle cutthroat just a few minutes in just a few minutes as may bragged we will arrive at the hotel dumont thanks to to our bratty rowing crew teehee triumphant VFD is the last safe place. VFD is the last safe place, and it will soon be in ashes, just like your home, Baudelaire's. I'm going to do a special tap dancing ballerina, fairy princess, veteran dance recital, Carmelita bragged on the graves of all of those volunteers. Carmelita leapt through the porthole, and her pink tutu fluttering as if it were trying to escape, and joined, o- and joined Olaf on the table and began to dance of triumph. C is for cute, Carmelita saying. A is for adorable. R is for ravishing. M is for not now, Carmelita. Olaf said, giving the tap dancing ballerina fairy princess veterinarian a tense smile. Why don't you save your dance for later? I'll bet that your dance that all the dance I'll buy you all the dance costumes in the world with VFD out of the way. All the fortunes in the world can be mine, and the Baudelaire fortune, the Quagmire fortune, and the Wittershins fortune. The where's Fiona? Klaus asked, interrupted, interrupting the villain. What have you done with her? Have you hurt her? Hurt her? Count Olaf asked, his shining eyes bright beneath his scraggly brow. Hurt triangle eyes? Why would I ever? Why would I hurt a clever girl like that? Teehee troop member. With one of his tiresome, dramatic gestures, Count Olaf pointed behind him, and Esme clapped her tentacles out of her outfit as two people appeared from the porthole. One was the hook-handed man, who looked as wicked as he had ever had, and the other was Fiona, who looked slightly different. One difference was that the expression on her face, which looked resigned, a word here which means as if the mycologist had given up entirely on defeating Count Olaf. No, Klaus, Klaus said quietly as he stared at his friend. No, Violet said firmly as she looked at Klaus. No, Sunny said angrily, who bared her teeth at Fiona stepping through the porthole and stood beside Count Olaf on the wooden table, her boot brushed against the poetry books and Violet and Klaus had taken from the sideboard, including the book by Lewis Corral and T.S. Eliot. There were some who say that the poetry of Lewis Corral is too whimsical, a word here which means full of comic nonsense, and others who complain that T.S. Eliot's poetry is too opaque which refers to something unnecessarily that is unnecessarily complicated. But while everyone may not agree with the poet po- on the poets represented on the wooden table, every noble reader in in the world would agree that the poet represented on Fiona's uniform was a writer of the limited skill who wrote awkward, tedious poetry and hopeless sentences. Yes, Fiona said quietly, and the Baudelaire, orf- Baudelaire orphans looked up 
at the portrait of Edgar Gass smiling from the front of her uniform and felt as if the tables had turned once more. Did Fiona turn into a bad guy? Mm-hmm. Fiona turned into a bad guy? No. Oh, it was just a trick? No. Okay, I'm confused. How come Fiona's with her brother and they're like, no! Do you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, she won't tell us, though. She's just going to keep saying no to every question and make us think that she's giving us answers when she's not, right? Is that what's happening here? Mm-mm. Oh, no. I mean, I don't know. Okay, she doesn't know. Are you falling asleep? No. <laughs> Fibber. <laughs>